Let's pray. Gracious God, merciful Father, we pray, Lord, that as we begin and as we prepare to, to look closely at these two verses that are so, so important to the life and the health and the harmony and the peace of the church, but not only the church, but for all of life, Father. Father, we pray that you would help us. Lord, we pray that you would cause us, that you would take hold of our attention and of our minds, and that you would cause us to pay close attention to the words of Paul, your apostle. And that we would take them to heart, Lord God. Pray that you would cause each of us, myself included, to humbly bow before your word. Not only today, but every day, Lord God. And that we would trust you and trust all that you have said. To us through your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> most, most born again professing believers are practical deniers of the authority and the trustworthiness and the inerrancy of God's word. I know that's a bold statement, but I stand by it, and I'll say it again in case you missed it the first time. Most Christians, the vast majority of true believers, born-again believers, are practical deniers of the trustworthiness and the authority and the inerrancy of God's word. And I say that based on 25 years of experience of having discipled individuals, counseled with individuals, engaged in marital counseling with couples over the years. Because I came to realize, you see, back in college, I majored in religious studies and seminary. I've taken courses on biblical counseling, and I've read many books on biblical counseling. And in some of those courses, we had to engage in these mock counseling sessions where we would counsel each other in class with the other students and the professors watching and written a lot of research papers on biblical counseling. But then when you begin to put all of that knowledge and training into practice, you begin to realize that biblical counseling is not as complicated as most people think it is. Because you come to realize, or at least I came to realize, 
that biblical counseling or helping people deal with their problems, whatever their problems may be, and most of them are relational, by the way. That's because none of us live in a bubble. Most of our problems are relational problems, either with our spouse, with our children, with our friends, with our coworkers, with our parents, or with fellow individuals within the church. But it all boils down to this. When you counsel with someone or disciple with someone, it all comes down to really just two things. One, showing them in God's word what the Bible has to say about their problem and how it's to be resolved. And then number two, you spend the rest of your time convincing them that this really can be trusted. This really will work if you just follow it, if you just do what it says. Because quite oftentimes, I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I've met with husbands struggling with their wives. She does this, and she does that, and she won't do this, and she won't do that. All of these complaints. What do I do about that? Well, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and following. Scripture says, regardless of what your wife is like, husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loves the church. In the same way that Christ loves the church, you are to love your wife regardless if she acts and behaves like Gomer. Lovingly, patiently, gently, kindly. Well, look, I keep praying and praying and praying. Nothing's working. Well, let's look at 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing them honor as the weaker vessels. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. To which oftentimes the response is, you've got to be kidding me. You can't be serious. Or wives who struggle with their husbands because he's an ogre, he's lazy, he's cruel, he's uncaring, he doesn't give me enough affection, enough attention, and this and that and this and that. What do we do? What do I do? Well, Ephesians 5, 22 and 24 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits unto Christ. 1 Peter 3, 1 and following says, Wives, submit to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word of God, they may be won over without a word but by the conduct of your godly character. Not by nagging them, not by berating them, not by Bible-thumping them daily, but simply living out the Christian life in front of them. To which often the response is, okay, look, I came here looking for real solutions to real problems. Right? This... I'm being serious here. Like, what? Give me help here. Well, this is what God's Word says. Oh, I, I know that. But 
I need real help. I need real solutions. Children who struggle with their parents because they're unreasonable, they're illogical, they're old-fashioned, they're archaic. They don't understand the world we live in. I need my cell phone. It's like air, phone, food, and water. Fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. Paul reminds us it's a commandment with a promise. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long. In other words, that God may bless your life. If you want God's blessing upon your life, honor your parents. If you want God's disfavor on your life, if you want the cursings of God to come upon you, according to the fifth commandment, then dishonor your parents, and life will be difficult for you. Really? I mean... Am I really supposed to believe that? Am I really not supposed to marry this person because my parents strongly disapprove? But we're in love. You can't stop love. I've seen all the Hallmark movies. (laughs) Church is often split. They fall apart and they disintegrate because they simply don't believe Hebrews 13, 17. Submit to your leaders and obey them as those who will have to give an account to God for your souls. Well, look, I don't have a problem with that. When they're right, I'll submit all day long when they agree with me. But I won't when they disagree. Relationships oftentimes disintegrate. Relationships within families, relationships within marriages, relationships within church, work relationships often disintegrate Because Christians really don't believe the words of our God and Savior, Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your I can't tell you how many times in counseling I've taken people to that passage only to be met with the response, but you don't know what they've done to me. You don't know how badly they've hurt me. You don't know how many times they've hurt me. To which I, as gently as I can, remind them, if you don't forgive, you will not go to heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Now, no, don't try to scare me with that. I've been baptized. I've said the Lord's Prayer. I know I'm a Christian. I know I believe. I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I believe that. Just because I have decided to love that person from a distance. Yeah, I forgive them. I just don't want anything to do with them. I don't ever want to see them again or have them be a part of my life. If you do not forgive others, Jesus says, you will be the one who stands at the day of judgment and says, Lord, Lord, look what I've done in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Because I sought forgiveness and reconciliation, and you would not forgive me. When, Lord Jesus, did I do that to you? For as much as you've done it to the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. At root, at root, most Christians struggle with the very same thing and the very same question that Adam and Eve struggled with. Has God really said? Is that, is that really what God means? We won't surely die. God won't surely not Forgive us if we don't forgive others. God won't surely not answer my prayer if I don't live with my wife in an understanding way. God surely won't remove his hand of blessing from my life if I don't honor my mother and my father. Has God really said? You see, that's the issue that the church in Corinth was dealing with. And that is the issue that Paul wants to point out to them, and he wants to point them back to. Because they are dealing with all sorts of division that is going on in the church. Some of the division is over people, right? We've seen that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 10 and following. He mentions that again in chapter 3. Verse, uh, verse 5 mentions it again in chapter 3 toward the end, verses 21 and 22. Some are dealing with divisions among people. They're taking sides. I follow Peter. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. This is the guy that I listen to. Whatever he says is right. Everybody else is wrong. Some of the division is the result over them listening to worldly wisdom. What does my neighbor have to say? What does Plato have to say? What does Socrates have to say in terms of how we deal with this? But there are others that Paul is going to have to address as we move forward. In the church in Corinth, they deal with division over church discipline, whether it should be done, how it should be done, what that should look like. They are dealing with issues of lawsuits, Christians taking each other to court. Can't they figure things out among themselves? They are dealing with issues and division among uh, regarding the topic of marriage and divorce and remarriage, what that looks like, when it can be done. They're dealing with division over the improper use of the sacraments. They're dealing with division over 
the proper and improper use of the various gifts of the Spirit. But it all comes back to this, and this is what Paul is going to point out to them. They are veering from God's word, and it is causing an enormous amount of problems within the church. In a sense, here's what Paul's saying. Let me give you a summary of today's message and what Paul is saying in these two verses. Read the Bible. takes a lot of patience to do counseling with people. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to hold this up. So you can read, right? Why is this so difficult? This is what Paul wants to point out to them. They are simply veering from God's word. And it is creating an enormous amount of problems within the church and within their relationships. And so Paul, in our text, having pointed out in verses 1 through 5 that the apostles, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, and certainly all ministers of the gospel within the church are nothing. Right? That's his point in verses 1 through 5. The apostles, ministers of the gospel, primarily, but of course this would apply to all Christians, as Christ himself is the quintessential example. We are all simply servants. Stop thinking of yourself as anything more than that. And after reminding them of that, He then says in verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Now, Paul says, I have applied all these things. Uh, What does he mean by Um, All these things. What things is he referring to? Well, I think Paul is referring to the points that he has already made in the first three chapters. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 and following, he essentially tells them, look, quit following the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world is foolishness. Don't do that. And then in chapter 2, he tells them that I desire to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. It's all about Christ keeping the cross of Christ before your eyes and letting that compel you in everything that you do. And then in chapter 3, he reminds them that we are all just fellow laborers. It's God's field. It's God's building. None of us own it. We just work alongside of each other. We're just fellow workers in the field. That's all we are. And so Paul says, look, I've applied all of these things to me and Apollos as well. That you might learn from us. In other words, he wants them to understand that Paul and Apollos, and he mentions those two because those two spent the majority of the time in 
Corinth, we know from Acts 18 that they were both, well, Paul was there with Apollos for at least 18 months before he moves on, and then he leaves Apollos there even longer. And he's reminding them that we don't just talk the talk, we actually walk the walk. Everything that I've said to you, church in Corinth, I've applied it to myself, me and Apollos. We do this. We live this out so that you can learn from our example. We do this, he says, for your benefit. You know, this is why Paul makes such a big deal back in verse 2 that ministers of the gospel are to be trustworthy, faithful in all that they do and say. Paul offers himself as the quintessential example. That is because Paul firmly believes that every minister of the gospel ought to be able to say to their church what Paul says to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul can't say that if he's not actually living what he teaches. Every minister of the gospel, and let me broaden the application, every parent, if you have children, every man, if you're married and have children, ought to be able to say to your family, follow me, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. But this is definitely true of ministers of the gospel, of elders and of pastors. That's why Peter will say, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes this, beginning in verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Right? So I exhort the elders. He's talking to them. What's he say to them? Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. Listen, but being examples to the flock. In a... In one week, we're going to be examining someone for the office of elder. And that's a question that everybody needs to have in their mind. Is this man an example to the flock? Not just he himself, but his wife, his children, the way he manages his home, the way he conducts his business in his place of employment, Is he an imitator of Christ so that the rest of us may follow his example? So Paul reminds the church in Corinth that he doesn't just talk the talk, but he walks the walk. I've applied all of this to myself as well, he says. Why? Look at verse 6 again. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. That, here's the reason, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. 
Now, there's some debate as to what Paul means by that phrase, what is written. What, what writing is Paul talking about? Is he simply talking about the first three chapters of the book in Corinth? Probably includes that. Certainly, it must be more than that, though. Certainly, he's not telling them, look, just read the first three chapters over and over and over again, and you're good. <clears throat> he may have in mind what he is writing currently. Don't go beyond this. Don't go beyond what is written here. And he may have the entire book of Corinth in mind, 1 Corinthians. It may be that Paul is referencing the previous book that he wrote to them. We know that he wrote a previous book <clears throat> that is no longer in existence. We know that from 1 Corinthians 5, 9. But most likely, Paul is referencing the entire Old Testament. Most likely, he is referencing all of God's Word. And I say that <clears throat> because I did the research myself. And throughout the entire New Testament, Paul uses that phrase, is written. It is written or it has been written 34 times in the New Testament. And every single occurrence, it's a reference to the Old Testament. Very clear. In every other occurrence, it is a reference to the scriptures of the Old Testament. And that makes sense because that would have, had, that would have been the Bible that they had. Not that Paul would have expected them to follow it as it's written. He's not wanting them to convert to Judaism. Remember, he spent at least 18 months with them, surely explaining to them how they interpret the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. <clears throat> Thus, Paul likely has in mind some Old Testament passages as he writes this. He probably has in mind passages like Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Scripture says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? This is what God requires of you, but to fear the Lord your God. Understand, don't water that down. It doesn't mean just have a reverence for God, yes. Have a reverence for God, but also have a genuine, healthy fear of your king. That you would bring upon yourself his disapproval and his displeasure by the way in which you live and think and talk and treat others. What does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today, listen, for your good. For your good. You know, we read the Old Testament you know, the Jews had to have thought, this is so much, this is overwhelming, all of these sacrifices, all of these offerings, all of these laws. It's for their good. The question is, are they going to believe that? You know, Christians struggle with that in the New Testament. So many commandments. Do I really have to live my life this way exactly? 
There's so much. It is all for your good. Paul may have had in mind Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 29 to 32. The Israelites are preparing to enter into the promised land. And Scripture says, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them, and you dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them. Don't live like they lived after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? that I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. My friends, the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. That doesn't just apply to the Old Testament. It applies to the New Testament as well. We ought to live our lives being careful to do all that God has commanded us to do. We should not add to it. We don't want to fall into legalism but we should not take from it. We don't want to fall into licentiousness. Paul may have had in mind the entire 119th Psalm. Let me just read you the first opening verses of Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of of the Lord. Blessed, the blessings of God, the favor of God will come upon those who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do not do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Those aren't my words. Those are God's words. God has commanded his precepts to be kept not half-heartedly, not lackadaisically, but diligently. Now, in the past, so I won't be surprised if it happens after today either, In the past, when I have preached messages like this, I am often met with the response, either through a text message or an email, legalism! Come on, really? Nobody can do all of this. Salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Isn't that what you always say, Hex? What are you, contradicting yourself now? Going back on everything? Some call it legalism, but the Bible in Proverbs 1-7 calls it wisdom. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. If you want to be a wise person, the Bible says, read this and follow it diligently. And you will be wise and you will be blessed by God. Notice why Paul wants them to follow what is written and to not go beyond it in verse 6. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Why? That, here's the reason, that none of you may be puffed up, arrogant in favor of one against another. The underlying Greek word, in the ESV for puffed up, is the word arrogant, prideful, boastful. It's the same word that Paul uses in 4.18. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Same word. Same word used in verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out the talk of these arrogant people. It's the exact same word he uses in verse 2, and you are arrogant He'll use it again to the church in Corinth in chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 13, verse 4. Paul uses that same word in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. You see, they were becoming very prideful, arrogant, favoring one person over against someone else because they weren't sticking closely to the word of God. Because in this world, you are going to be influenced by one of two things. Your behavior, your thoughts, your actions, the words that you use are going to be driven and informed by one of two things, either by the word of God or by the world. It doesn't matter that they are favoring Peter over Paul or Paul over Apollos. It doesn't matter that the debate is among theological individuals, among among theologians that they should follow, people that they trust, they're following the wisdom of the world. And they may not think that, and oftentimes Christians don't think that, but if your opinion, if your thought, if your decisions are not being driven by something that is clearly coming out of God's word, then it's coming from the world. And see, the world was influencing them. And as a result, they become arrogant because they think they know what's best. We should follow Peter and not Paul and Apollos primarily. Well, why do you think that? Because that's my opinion, and I know I'm right, because I'm always right. Arrogance. Rather than wanting to simply follow God's word. They had serious pride issues. 
in Corinth because they were not staying closely to God's word. You see, because God's word humbles us. God's word humbles us and it destroys human pride. It knocks you down to your size, which is why a lot of people don't want to read it. Again, I'm always amazed when I do counseling with people. One of the first questions I always ask is, how often do you read your Bible? Probably 99% of the time it's non-existent. Well, there's your first problem. You need to be in God's Word. Because God's Word acts like a mirror, doesn't it? The closer you look into it, the more and clearer, more clearly you see of yourself. You know, I've used that illustration for years, but most recently, it's really starting to hit home. I'm turning 50 next month. I find myself walking by a mirror in a department store down at the end of the aisle, and I think, you know, I don't look bad. I'm still kind of thin. I'm in shape. Then I start walking closer, and I start seeing more gray hairs on my beard and my head. I start seeing more wrinkles on my face. And if I get real close, I start to see age spots on my skin. And then I think, man, you're ugly. I look better back there. I don't look so good up close. That's what the Bible does for us. The closer we look into it, the more time we spend in it, it will show you who you really are. And it will destroy your pride because you're no better than anybody else. You're no smarter than anybody else. You're a sinner in desperate need of a savior just like the rest of us. You are wicked and evil at the core just like the rest of us, myself included. God's word causes us to realize that I am really nothing more than a servant. Isn't this what Paul said in verse 1? This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. This is how we should regard ourselves as servants of Christ. One of the most convicting passages in the Bible, one that I read quite often, I have it underlined in my Bible because I need to be reminded of it daily, is Luke chapter 17. I'd encourage you to highlight these verses. Read them over and over and over again. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 7, Jesus says this, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the fields, come at once and recline at table? What master does that to the servant? Hey, you've worked hard. Come on in. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So also, when you have done all that you were commanded, should say to yourselves, we are unworthy servants, 
We have only done what was our duty. You know, every husband and wife needs to remember that, don't they? I slave, I work, I do all of this, and she or he does nothing, doesn't appreciate it, doesn't even acknowledge what I do. Jesus says, remind yourself, we are unworthy servants, and we have only done what was our duty. If the Corinthian church allowed their behavior to be governed and their thoughts to be shaped by God's word, their level of arrogance and foolishness would simply vanish. All of the problems in their church would be extremely minimized. I'll give you another example, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Scripture says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Let that sink in, just those few words. Do nothing from selfish motive. If you're doing anything hoping to benefit from it on any level or to any degree, Paul says you're wrong. Do nothing, absolutely nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant, more important than yourself. That's number one. Humility means thinking about others, treating others, their needs, their desires, their wants, their times as being more important than mine. Mine doesn't matter. Yours, yours matters. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, number two, look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. So Paul is being accurate here in that to some extent, we do have to think about ourselves on some level, right? We've got to feed ourselves, right? We have to clothe ourselves. We need to protect ourselves. But Paul says, don't just think about yourself. Think about others. Think about dividing your food, even if you're starving, and sharing it with the person next to you. If the church in Corinth, if any church, if husbands, if wives, if children, if parents, if elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, life group leaders, employees and employers all functioned this way. These two simple verses. Could you imagine what life would be like? The problem is we don't really believe this, do we? It's hard to believe that if I put other people first all the time, that I'm going to be happy. It's hard to believe that if I simply love my wife as Christ loves the church, regardless of how horrible she is to me, that God is going to bless me. 
It's hard to believe that if I honor my mother and my father, regardless of how difficult and unreasonable they are, that my life will be blessed of God. It's the age-old struggle, isn't it? Has God really said? <coughs> then to highlight, to highlight their level of arrogance, Paul <clears throat> provides three rhetorical questions. Who, what, and why? Who, what, and why? Verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? By the way, the uh, you here is in the singular. Most of the you's in the book of Corinth are in the plural. That makes sense because Paul's writing to church. But here it's in the singular. Paul rarely does this, but when he does, it's because he's addressing a hypothetical person or a hypothetical situation. He doesn't really know that there's anybody in the church who actually thinks this way. But in case there is, he's going to address their foolishness. And so he asked a question. The NIV has a good translation. The NIV reads, who makes you different from anyone else? What makes you think that you are any different or any better than anybody else? That it has to be your way or that you know better than anyone else. You're just a servant. You're just a sinner like the rest of us. We are all Stinky, smelly sheep together. And then he asked, what, so here's the what, what do you have that you did not receive from God is the implication. What do you have that you did not receive from God? If you do have any gifts, any talents, any abilities, if there are any blessings in your life, did they not come from God? Of course they did. He taught them that. James chapter 1, verse 17, all good things come from God above. If you can name a blessing in your life or a talent or a gift that you have, it was given to you by God. We're nothing more than the bowls that hold these things, right? Two pots. One is a chamber pot. You know what's in that. And the other has fresh cut up fruit. Which one's more attractive? Well, obviously we know, right? But it's not the pot. The pots are identical. My friends, that's us. We once were all the chamber pot filled with just that. And God saved us sanctified us, cleansed us out by the Holy Spirit, and fills us with good things. God gets all the glory. And so then he asks the why. If then you received it from God, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why are you boastful and arrogant and prideful as if the gifts that you have or the, the blessings that you have in life came from you, that I did this? I accomplished this. These are my gifts. God saved me because he needed me. Paul says, if everything you have is 
from God. Why do you boast as if somehow it's all about you? Paul's point to them is simply this. You are so arrogant, you don't make any sense. You can't even see your own arrogance because you are so arrogant. In the end, in the end, here's Paul's point. Obedience to God's word. Following closely to God's word makes for a happier life. Happier marriage, happier parenting, a happier church, a happier work environment. Disobedience leads to misery. You know, I tell this to my kids all the time. But I think all they hear is wah, 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 wah. <laughs> Obedience to God's word leads to a happier, blessed life. Disobedience, following your own thoughts, your own way of doing things, your own judgments, listening to the world, listening to your friends leads to misery. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, 